doing dentistry is hard and doing good dentistry is even harder. And so we want to empower the offices to be able to do good dentistry. And the way that we do that is, is we try to get rid of all the noise, like just focus on the dentistry, focus on the patient that's in front of you. So for example, for our front desk support, we'll remove the EOB processing and we'll centralize that with our revenue cycle team. We'll offer them that sort of support. We'll handle the vendor relationships. We'll handle the supply order and you put in the order, but we'll handle the negotiations with the suppliers and things so that they can focus just on the, the immediate needs. And then we support them all along the way. Hey there, dental economist. If you're a dentist owner or a leader within a dental business thinking about growing production, case acceptance, patient and staff satisfaction, positive outcomes, and everything else that comes with running a dental business, then you're a dental economist and you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Dental Economist Show. We're meeting at the intersection of profit and purpose as I sit down with dental leaders who share their stories about dentistry, business, and growth. Hi, welcome back to another episode of The Dental Economist Show. I'm your host, Mike Huffaker. Joining me today is Rob Colts, the Senior Vice President of Clinical Affairs at Premier Care Dental Management. As the name suggests, Premier Care is the number one dental management company in the Northeast, led by enterprising doctors like Rob himself, who pride themselves on both their medical and business acumen. Rob has coached and guided many dentists and dental companies through their business practices, letting them focus on what they do best, dentistry. Whether that's by helping them integrate AI into their organization's processes or maximizing their efficiency without compromising an iota on their patient-first care approach. Dr. Colts lectures nationally on creating and driving operational and clinical metrics to create strong organizational growth, as well as the current and future state of artificial intelligence and its impact on the delivery of dental care. So welcome, Dr. Rob. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Excited for today's conversation. Absolutely. So I got introduced to you through a number of people and many of my favorite people. So Mehmet and Beth and Chris Thompson have all spoken very highly of you. We've had a brief conversation before and I was looking through kind of your background and your history and kind of your career in dental. And I noticed that right out of dental school, you joined Heartland. And I'd be curious to hear, you know, why was it your decision to join a DSO and, and what was that experience like? Yeah, so I was introduced to Heartland while I was in dental school. So I went to University of Minnesota School of Dentistry, and I had some family that lived out in Pennsylvania, and they were trying to recruit me. And I don't remember how I got introduced to the recruiter, but I ended up getting connected with a dentist. Uh, I'm in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area, um, and I got connected with a dentist out here that had just affiliated with Heartland. So by the time I joined him, once school ended, I think he had been with Heartland less than six months. And my experience working with Heartland was actually really fantastic. I learned a lot of things that really set me up for the rest of my career. You'll probably hear me talk about this a little bit throughout the conversation today, but one of the things that I'm really passionate about is clinical mentorship for doctors and hygienists and any clinical staff. And that really comes from the foundation that I received when I was working with Heartland. So I had uh, the other doctor in my practice was a very experienced doctor, very productive, did great work. And it was really through that exposure and, and him mentoring me that it really made me realize where my passion was in dentistry. And I love patient care. I love the delivery of patient care. But really what I gained was an appreciation for the power that a strong mentor has and the, the power that strong systems set up around the doctor in the office and the impact that that can have on dental practice and ultimately for the patient experience. So you know, I really credit where I am today in my career from those first couple of years I spent with Dr. Arndt, my mentor, and uh, that Heartland-affiliated practice. 
Yeah, mentorship is, is so important. I noticed that you received your MBA just a, a few years after joining Heartland. Was it always a plan of yours to pursue an MBA? And, and why was that important to you? You know, it actually wasn't. I started out, I guess, my undergrad as a business management major that shifted to biology once I decided I want to go to dental school just because that checked all the boxes for uh, getting into dental school. And then it was probably three months after graduation. I remember I came home from work one day and I was a little bit like, is this it? Like, I got to prep fillings and crowns like for 35 years. And I think most of that was just I was a new dentist and I didn't realize how much clinical things I could learn and other skills and stuff. But in my new young dentist brain, I, I felt like, okay, what, what else is there for me? And so I, I considered, do I specialize? And it was actually my wife who suggested that, well, you know, why don't you go to business school? You always had this passion for business. Why don't you consider putting that to use? And, you know, I, I learned a lot of good things when I was in, in that Heartland practice of ways that they help support me. I also saw some inefficiencies that I felt like maybe there could be some tweaking that could make things even run more efficiently. And so ended up getting an MBA from Penn State. And, uh, you know, that really set up the next stages of my career very well, you know, empowered me significantly to have conversations with people that may have otherwise not have taken me seriously. And, and, you know, it's not to say that you need an MBA to be successful in dentistry by any means, but for where I ended up navigating my career to, I think it, it opened some doors that I otherwise wouldn't have had opened. So one of the, I guess, knocks against dentists in the industry is the fact that there is an absence of being business savvy. You know, you went, you've got your MBA. As you view kind of the landscape, do you feel that that is an opportunity for growth for many clinicians to have a better understanding of the business side of things? Absolutely. I, th I think in dental school, my training in business consisted of a single class. And essentially, the takeaway that I remember was hire a good accountant, hire a good lawyer, and have them guide you through the process. I, I think the reality, though, is that dentistry is, is interesting. You know, medicine in general in order for us to generate revenue, we have to treat disease. In order for us to treat disease, we have to be diagnosing it on our patients, right? So this little conflict of interest, so to speak. So you need to have a strong moral compass. And the reality, and what I tell doctors when I'm working with them is there is enough dentistry to be done without dentists needing to make up work, right? We don't need to go find things or invent diseases that a patient doesn't have to try to find more treatment. We just diagnose what's there. There is plenty to keep multiple dentists busy. But, you know, the challenge then becomes you might be the best clinician, but if you're not set up to operate your practice efficiently, you may end up, your take-home pay may be very low, right? You may have exorbitant supply costs or staff costs or all these other things. You may not know how to read a PNL adequately or how to look at a PNL and analyze it for ways that you can generate some more efficiencies there. So I think in general, for most clinicians, having some additional business support, whether that's through personal education for yourself, whether that's having good people around you, a mix of those, or maybe it's affiliating with an organization that can help run or manage some of those business systems for you. I think that is needed for a lot of clinicians out there for sure. All right. So we talked a little bit before we started this episode. And one of the topics that we thought would be interesting to discuss is why practices should operate as a DSO, even if they're not. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, and I think that's going to be a controversial statement to a small degree. So I, I'm in a, a lot of Facebook groups and a common thread among them is knocking DSOs and the impact that they're having in dentistry in general. And so I think what people really, and usually it's from people who aren't affiliated with the DSO, they're competing with the DSO, or maybe they were in a DSO and they had a bad experience. I think the reality though is there are good DSOs, there are bad DSOs, there's good 
non-DSO practices, there's bad non-DSO practices. And so it's what are DSOs providing? If you look at a good or, or, or a, a DSO that's what I call not an evil DSO, what are they providing for these practices? And how do we replicate that in, a, in your own practice if you're not affiliated with the DSO? And one of the things that I think is, is really most impactful is the separation of business and clinical systems. Okay, So in most solo practitioner office, or even if you're in an office where there's a couple of doctors and there's maybe a couple of them on the practice and there's some associates, the business systems and clinical systems are very married to each other. The doctor who owns the practice is also the doctor who's giving the raises to the staff. It's also the, the doctor who's negotiating supply costs and talking to vendors and all of those various, those various things. We strive really hard at Premier Care Dental Management. And for those who aren't familiar with us, we have about 135-ish practices. We're growing fast. We employ 350 doctors and hundreds and hundreds of hygienists and have a very large support team. And we strive really hard to allow the dentists and the hygienists to be clinicians and just need to be clinicians. We don't want them to have to worry about uh, negotiating rates with a vendor or to call Henry Schein or Patterson and negotiate their supply costs down. We don't want them analyzing a PL and saying, what do I need to do to generate more profit? Okay, We have people that do that. Looking at those things and doing those functions are important in a practice, but we strive really hard so that the doctor can focus on on one thing, and that's the patient. And how do they provide a better experience for the patient? How do they provide better outcomes for the patient? And so the way that we do that in our organization, for example, is we don't give our clinicians targets. We don't give them daily production goals. No operations person is going to walk into a practice and tell a doctor, you have to produce $5,000 today. That's just not how it works. Because what if you have a day where you have patients that have low needs? Are you going to make up some crowns just to hit a target? The reality, though, is that what we focus on with them is what continuing education do you need to be the best clinician that you can be? Are you following the standard of care? So for example, when I walk into a practice, the conversations I often have are, are you using a rubber dam when you're doing a root canal? Okay. And the answer oftentimes is no. And so it's how do we elevate them to the standard of care, right? When I'm talking with hygienists, it's, are you providing comprehensive periodontal evaluations and providing periodontal services for your patients? And so if you're in a private practice, you can still emulate that example, right? You can run metrics on your hygiene teams and you can look at the percentage of periodontal treatments that they're providing, right? Not with the goal of elevating your revenue, but with the goal of how do I provide a better experience for the patient? So for example, if I see that there's a hygienist who does 2% periodontal treatments, you know, of her patients, 2% are receiving periodontal therapy. Is that the right number? Well, we know that over 40, over 50 even uh, percentage of patients have periodontal disease. So is 2% the right number? I would venture to say probably not. So how do we audit that? How do we educate? How do we elevate the standard of care that we're providing to our patients? And so that's very different than coming in with a goal and telling our hygienists, you need to produce $1,200 a day. And so now they're you know selling night guards and they're selling sealants and all these things that maybe the patients need, maybe they don't. But let's not focus on the production target. Let's focus on the patient. And so I, you know, th there's a lot more we could get into that, but I, I think the number one thing for me is separation of business and clinical systems so that there's not conflict of interest and we're, and we're really maximizing the patient experience and the patient outcome. So I really like the separation that you're talking about there. And even going further, the fact that you're aligning incentives with the providers and the patients, and even kind of separate and apart from the business, like ultimately the outcome is a positive result for the business as well. But by not instilling these types of goals or quotas or anything else for the providers and focusing more on the education, it really seems like you're driving different behaviors than those groups that some might consider when they're talking on the Facebook panels, the evil groups or otherwise. I am curious, you know, when you're having these conversations with the clinicians and you're discussing this approach, like as a provider, 
in one of your offices, how do I know that I'm doing well? Like, how do I know that I'm doing right by my patients, that I'm doing right within my role within the practice? Like, what are the kind of measurements that, that can be done at that point to ensure that you're on the right track? Maybe let me preface that answer with, because we don't give the doctors and the clinical team goals does not mean that there's not metrics that we're evaluating. At Premier Care, we obsess over data. We are very data-driven, right? But we just try to segregate that. So for example, I can run a report and I can look at the average daily production of all my doctors in a region, okay? Now, none of them have a target. None of them may even know what their average daily production is. So why do I pull those numbers? Well, I look at it so I can look for outliers to know who maybe I need to prioritize for mentorship, continuing education, right? If somebody's ridiculously high, right? We want to make sure, are we doing needed dentistry? Maybe this is a doctor with a, a fantastic skill set. That's great. But you know, what if this is a doctor that is over-treating, right? So we want to evaluate that. Same thing on the other side. If I have a doctor that's extremely low below our average, okay, well, is, is this a doctor who's less experienced right out of school? Do they need mentorship? Do they need somebody there helping them go through treatment plans? You know, when I first graduated, my mentor spent the first, I don't know, it was probably four or six months going through every full mouth series of x-rays with me. So I would go through it. I would come up with my treatment plan. He would go through it. And it took me like 15 minutes per FMX. And this doctor would spend, you know, 90 seconds and have a better treatment plan than I had ever come up with. But over time, I started getting more comfortable recognizing his clinic, what he would th be thinking clinically. And I didn't always agree with him, but it was giving me things to think about. And so we try to replicate that sort of an experience. And so we use data, we use those metrics, both on the hygiene side and the doctor side, but not in a goal setting or a, you must hit this performance metric, but on a, are you providing an adequate level of care for your patients in general? And then we provide a lot of auditing and support going through charts. For example, we've got a whole team that will review charts for treatment plan appropriateness. And are we following the standard of care? And are you taking an x-ray after you see the crown? And, and these are purely clinical things that we're doing and auditing for our doctors to help them have a little bit of accountability and help make sure as we get new providers, because we're constantly growing, that we still have a standard of care across the company that is met. So back to your question, which was, how does a provider in our organization know if they're being successful? Really, it comes down to, are you having satisfied patients that are coming back for their appointments? You have a low cancellation rate. You've got a high re patient referral rate and you're soliciting reviews and the, and the reviews are positive. We do a lot of NPS surveys for patients. So we gather that data and that's usually the metrics that will hone in on an office that's either underperforming or they're doing really well. And it's those sort of metrics that we follow rather than business metrics. Although we obsess over those metrics, we try to segregate that from the clinician. So with that focus on data and, and making data-driven decisions and having that oversight on the clinical side of the business, is it a culture shock for some providers that enter the organization? Is that additional oversight than some are used to? And how do you get buy-in for that being the culture within um, your organization and, and, and what you guys are looking to drive and the outcomes you're looking to achieve? I see a little bit of culture shock both ways, actually. So there are some practices that will acquire, for example, that they were very rigid in. We had a daily goal. Our hygienist had a daily goal. They knew how many fluorides they needed to do every day. And when we pull that back, they almost feel like it's too light of a touch, that they're used to having all these goals that they needed to try to attain. And we try to shift the focus from the number to the patient, right? And then there's also the culture shock the other way. There's, there's groups that we acquire that they've, they've never looked at any metrics. They've never evaluated any of that. They've never had anybody hold them accountable for what the standard of care should be. And so doing some things that seem simple, like taking an x-ray after you see the crown or using a rubber dam on a root canal and having somebody holding you accountable to that to a degree can be a little bit of a culture shock. 
But we're very upfront with practices that we acquire with doctors that affiliate with us. We tell them we are not a light touch organization. We have a minimum standard of clinical care that we expect all of our clinicians to follow, right? And this is not revenue driven. This is patient outcome driven. You know, for example, uh, when we have this many offices to administer this, we need unified systems. So one of the first things we do is we, you know, from day one, we will put them on to our Denicon platform and we've got unified patient management software. They may not like it, but we're going to do it because we need to do this to administer our program at the scale, which we are. Um, and then there's other technology platforms and things that we put them on. And, and we've got a large data warehouse where we aggregate all of the data that we get from Denicon and from other sources. And that's how we generate all of these reports. And, you know, I think providers over time really learn that there's a lot of availability to them to, to have access to this data and to these metrics. And so they, they start recognizing that, oh, I can use this data for myself to help myself learn where I want to improve, right? I can look at this and recognize I've got these two hygienists who are doing great at our fluoride initiative and this other hygienist who's not. And I, I know that because of data, I don't have to go back and look at charts. So aggregating all that information, I think, ends up being a really powerful tool for our clinicians. It sounds like you guys are very disciplined in expectation setting on the clinical side. Does that same expectation setting and rigor extend across the entire practice when you get into front desk staff or dental assistants? Do you have very clear business operations playbooks that you follow in order to ensure a consistency of care across all of your practices and the same sort of experience for your patients. Yes, we provide a ton of support for all of the different roles in an office. We have a wonderful team of back office trainers that will go in and they'll sit there behind the front desk with the team and help them. You know, for example, one of the most traumatic things that I mentioned is when you convert somebody's patient management software to a new system. Doesn't matter if it's a good change or not, you're changing it. And every function for that front desk changes, the button changes, the, you know, the location of it changes. And so that trauma we anticipate, and we've got a team of people that go in and they do pre-training and then they sit there and they do training and they're there for weeks giving support. And we really make sure that every job function has the support that we need. So our office managers know who they can go to. We've got regional managers who support the business operations of the practice and they know all the way up to our senior vice president of operations who they can go to for support. And if anything, I think we're maybe even over heavy on the support, but we always want to err on the side of having too much availability and too much support for these practices. And you'll hear our founder, Dr. Scott Asna, say, say this frequently, that doing dentistry is hard and doing good dentistry is even harder. And so we want to empower the offices to be able to do good dentistry. And the way that we do that is, is we try to get rid of all the noise, like just focus on the dentistry, focus on the patient that's in front of you. So for example, for our front desk support, we'll remove the EOB processing and we'll centralize that with our revenue cycle team. We'll offer them that sort of support. We'll handle the vendor relationships. We'll handle the supply order and you put in the order, but we'll handle the negotiations with the suppliers and things so that they can focus just on the, the immediate needs. And then we support them all along the way. What are some of the new technologies, approaches that you have implemented or that you all are considering implementing in the practice of dentistry, whether it's AI or saliva testing or anything new that seems to be gaining traction or will add additional benefit to the treatment of patients? The number one thing that we mentioned is the patient management software. So we're, we're happy uh, Denicon users. We've got that in all of our practices. And that really just helps, you know, I can sit here at, at my home office and I can pull up x-rays for any office and audit their charts and things. And they, doctors have that ability as well. So that's really, I think the first one is having a platform that you can use that's scalable, 
having a platform that has all of your redundancies built in. You know, I remember when I used to have to take home the hard drive at the end of the day, um, you know, the backup and take it home with me in case the building burned down and gone are those days now that things are in the cloud. And then on top of that, we really have a lot of technology initiatives that we're focusing on. So we're really proud, for example, of our saliva score initiative where we're doing salivary testing in many of our offices where we're testing for specific biomarkers that can be indicative of a patient's propensity to have periodontal disease progression and, and their level of inflammation. So th that's an ongoing process. We've got a number of practices on there and we're working on rolling that out through all of our practices. And this is cutting edge technology. I mean, it's really going to be super impactful for patients. Yeah, I saw that at one of the shows recently. And I was curious, what is the reaction from the patients? You know, there's, I think, some surprise that it's even available because it's not something that they really hear much about. And then I think there's a little bit of question is, is like, oh, is this a DNA test? What are you doing with this information? And, and really, we tell them this is a very specific test for a specific biomarker that gives us an indication of the inflammatory response that your body is able, able or is currently generating. And so what we do is we take that information and we pair it with the patient's periodontal status as far as their probing depths. We look at their bone levels, which we use artificial intelligence to evaluate. And then we aggregate that information and we're able to give a much more specific diagnosis for our patient. And not only the diagnosis of how they are today, but also, uh, you know, to some degree, a prediction of how they're going to respond to treatment based off of that biomarker that we look at in their in their saliva. So patients really are blown away by it. They're fascinated that this is available. And you know, we're really excited to be able to offer that to our patients. Is it a little bit of a wake-up call for some patients? I believe when you do the test and you receive the results, it will score it in a number of categories. And one of them, which I and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is something along the lines of like poor oral health or something along worded in, in that way. And maybe the wording is is different when you communicate to the patient what those results are. But if does it ever elicit any feeling of shock or uh, disappointment when you're having those conversations with patients related to the results that those tests provide? Yeah, some patients are really surprised. And to be honest, sometimes as clinicians, we're surprised too, because there's the obvious case, the patient with like the calculus everywhere and plaque everywhere, and then you do the test and you get a high result. And we grade it as A, B, C. So A being good, and then C would be a, a like critical number essentially. And so those are the patients that we would expect. But every once in a while as a clinician, you'll get surprised. You'll have a patient that's got a, looks like a pristine mouth. They come every six months, you know, the probing depths look good, and then they'll get a high number. And so sometimes for a new clinician using the platform, it's like, oh, maybe this test isn't accurate. But what you need to remember is this isn't, when we look at their probing depths and their bone levels, that's looking in the rear of your mirror. We're saying, what destruction did periodontal disease cause for you? What we're measuring with this saliva score is we're measuring is what does the future potentially look like for you, right? And so what that shows is you better keep coming in for your cleaning appointments. In fact, maybe we even want to shorten the frequency on them so that we maintain your level of health because you have a high uh, predisposition for, for this to continue and, and maybe snowball down the road if you were to have something happen or you didn't come to some of your appointments and things. So, and there's a lot of science behind it. You know, when we talk in generality, sometimes it sounds a little voodoo-ish, but there's actually a ton of uh, literature behind these tests. Going back to the consolidation in the industry, the acceleration of the formation of DSOs and the perception or reputation of DSOs that can be held by independent practices and then solo groups. When I first got into dental, I was trying to learn, this is just four years ago for me, spent a lot of time on Dental Town, Facebook groups, and even there's like a really dark place, Dental Reddit, that has a whole bunch of stuff on there as well. And that perception and viewpoint of there being negativity towards DSOs, is, as you mentioned, was pretty prevalent. Do you feel that that's changing though? That there are DSOs 
that for the most part now across the industry that are helping for that reputation to be modified from where it was even just a few short years ago. Yeah, I think it is changing. And I, I think there's a lot of organizations that really should be and are applauded for doing a lot of good, a lot of community outreach initiatives and, and really helping elevate the education of their providers. I do still think, though, there's still a lot of what I call EBITDA aggregators where they just buy up practices and then they don't actually like they're not a platform. They don't integrate them. They don't provide anything. All they do is buy the revenue and then hope at some point they're going to flip them. And, and those are the organizations that I think right now are struggling where they're not providing a value other than maybe they're sending in an operations team and trying to crack the whip and get their providers to produce more for their eventual turn. And that's not our model, for example. We are very much a integrated platform where you're going to come, you're going to join our platform. These are the services that we're going to provide for you. These are the efficiencies you're going to gain. And to be honest, we say no to a lot more practices on the acquisition side than we say yes to. We're very selective on, on who we affiliate with. And it's because we don't want just any old revenue source. We want people who are willing to integrate and be part of our system. And, and I think we're seeing those organizations right now succeed where they're more selective over how they're acquiring and they're making sure that there's a culture fit and a philosophy fit. You know, For example, as a company, we've made the stand that we're amalgam-free, we're latex-free, um, you know, there's some other lines where we draw. So if we find a practice that's got a significant number of amalgam placements and they're still very active in placing it, we may be more likely to pass on that than than others, right? Not to say that it's not within their right to place it. We've just made the decision that as an organization, we know that that's where we draw the line. And so it's having some principles like that and sticking to them that I think we're seeing those DSOs be much more successful. I agree completely. I've for quite some time now found it very interesting to kind of watch the different models throughout the space. And there are a number of those kind of EBITDA stackers out there. And it causes you to ask, where are you creating value? And obviously there's the, well, you can have larger purchasing power. You can get larger discounts on, you know, your supplies and materials, but that's not really at the end of the day where the individual practices are able to get value from the relationship that they have with the DSO. So I think you guys are doing it hundred percent the right way. And, you know, we appreciate that every time there is a new affiliation, they move on to our Denicom platform. And we also appreciate the challenge that that faces inside an individual practice and that there's a learning curve and that there's training and everything else that needs to take place for that to be successful. And I think that there have, you know, there's groups that look to avoid that process because it does create that disruption, but the long-term benefit that's gained far outweighs that periodic interruption that takes place with the practice. Aside from practice management software, are there any other technology softwares that you're looking to standardize, either from like a patient communication platform perspective, reporting or analytics, like anything else in your technology stack that's important and consistent across all of your practices? I think aside from saliva score, the other one that, that we're really rolled out completely to all of our general dental practices is uh, artificial intelligence. So we use Overjet's AI in our practices, and that's been a huge source of benefit for our doctors. So we're lucky in that we have it integrated within Denicon, so they have easy access to it. We also have access to the core dashboard, which I use frequently from a mentorship standpoint. And that's one of those things that when when we get a practice, they get Denicon, they get Overjet, you know, saliva score, we roll out a little bit more methodically because it takes, you know, quite a bit of education on what these numbers mean and, and things. 
But that's been something that from a ability for our doctors to provide high quality of care has been huge for us. So being able, having doctors have that reinforcement, looking at an x-ray and having the AI tell them some things that they should make sure that they evaluate, I think has been really powerful for us. Other than that, I think we are really big into intraoral cameras. So we make sure that all of our practices are fully stocked with intraoral cameras. Intraoral scanning got rolled out through almost all of our practices now. And, and any practices that doesn't have it is probably because the doctor hasn't expressed that they want to use it. But that one's been, for us, really big for patient communication, improving the quality of our preps. I think when a doctor sees their prep blown up on a 27-inch monitor, it changes the quality of dentistry that they provide. I know it did for me when I first used an intraoral scanner. And uh, so we always try to provide the highest quality technology to our providers so that they really can have the best patient outcomes. In addition to your extensive experience working with DSOs, you are an AI expert and you were at Overjet for a few years. Tell me a little bit about like what your perspective is and how it may have changed as you've began working at Premier Dental Care with that experience of having worked at a software company. Well, you know, working at a software company, for me, that, that working with Overjet was my first time in the tech space. So I've always been, from the time I got my MBA, I started a small DSO. We had six dental practices, sold that after a few years, did some consulting and, and helped launch, you know, pediatric office and things. And then joining Overjet was really my first experience in the tech space. And so it was an eye-opening experience for me. It's my first time working remotely, did a lot of travel, of course, going to conferences and things. But really what I learned from being in a tech company that's affiliated with dentistry, right? So I still felt like I was in dentistry, even though I was in tech, is the implementation of these tech solutions is really the challenge. So I don't think anybody disputes that AI is going to make a huge impact in dentistry and already has made a big impact. The question is, how do we motivate at scale doctors to implement this new technology? And anytime you implement anything, you see this, whether it's a new PMS, whether it's an intraoral scanner, intraoral camera. It's one thing for you as a solo practitioning doctor to buy it and use it, right? You made a purchasing decision, you want to use it, and so you're going to use it. Well, when you're at scale, and I try to roll something out to 350 doctors that weren't necessarily part of that purchasing experience, I think that's where you start to see the challenge. And in my time at Overjet, I worked with all of the major DSOs that, that were evaluating AI and going through that challenge with them. So now that I'm on the DSO side again, and I'm on the, the implementation side, luckily, I, I'm aware of the challenges that clinicians have as they implement this technology doesn't mean that it's easy, but it means I anticipate a lot of their concerns. And, you know, just the other day I was around, I did a roadshow to four or five dental practices and we did training on technology so that they, we reinforced the, uh, the need for implementing and continual usage. Yeah. So that's a great point. The buy-in for adoption for any new tool. And now that you have maybe a, a greater appreciation for the challenge that is faced with that, how do you overcome that? What are some of the approaches that you take in order to get buy-in and to gain adoption? Well, when I worked with Overjet, really, I felt like my entire role was a, an agent of change management. So you know, I always followed ADCAR, which is building awareness, building desire, making sure they have the knowledge, the ability, and then you're reinforcing it. So that's really, if you want something to be successful, it can't just be a one-time flyby implementation. It's the lead up to the implementation. It's how do I get them excited? How do I get them to understand the benefits? Making sure they have the knowledge once I am implementing it to actually be able to use the software and then continuing to follow up and close the loop. Because if it's important, then it needs to continually be important. It can't just be important when you implement it. And so we're seeing that same challenge with saliva score, right? We're implementing a saliva score. It's new, it's shiny, people use it. Well, is it still important for us two months after we've implemented it? Or is it only important for us right during the implementation? And so now it's how do we circle back to those practices and re-answer any questions they have and things. And so it's just that continual reinforcement. It's a nonstop effort. And for some of these efforts, really, it's a full-time responsibility to go through and track that. 
Yeah, it's challenging to be consistent over time because there is that initial excitement and then that excitement goes away and ensuring that there is that consistent behavior is probably one of the most difficult things we do just in business in general. So I can certainly appreciate that. I have a few just kind of random questions, not necessarily tied in directly to uh, dental or your experience at, at DSOs, but you have a large family. How many children do you have? I have seven children, three girls, four boys. Three girls, four boys. So I'm a parent too. I've got two little boys, 13 and 10, not quite as busy as you are. What piece of advice that you frequently give to your children? Like if you could pick one thing for them to really internalize and hold on to, what would that be? You know, that's a great question. We have a strong faith base. So for, for us, a lot of that conversation is revolved around faith and you know, how do you internalize some of that faith and, and how do you internalize it to the point where it changes your behavior and that you are a good person, that you do good things, that you go into the world and you, and you spread goodness to other people. I think for me, my message to my children often is be the best version of yourself that you can be. And just know that whatever you are today, you can be something better tomorrow. You just got to earn it, right? You got to do the education. You got to do the effort. You got to increase your faith, increase whatever it is you need. But that really the world's available to you at your fingertips if you're willing to put the effort in. And so whether that's faith-related or education-related or business-related, I think that principle still holds true. And so you know, that's, that's a big focus of mine as I, as I talk with my kids. Yeah, I love that. Now, you've had a lot of large roles in a variety of organizations. How do you think about, you know, there's the phrase work-life balance, which I don't know necessarily what that means. But as far as maybe quality of life, time with family, where you invest and how you spend your time, how do you make sure that you're doing the right thing to take care of those in your life that are most important? I always set my priority in this order. It's God, family, work. That's for me how I set my priorities. And doesn't mean that I ignore work all the time to do these other things, but it means when I'm looking at the broad spectrum of what's important to me and evaluating the impact that it's going to have, does it fall in line with those? And am I giving the appropriate attention to each one of those areas? So for me, work is extremely important. I've been with Premier Care only a few months. I still feel like I've got my training wheels on. I'm learning all of the systems and processes. So work's dominated and take a lot, a lot more time. Well, if I have a child's uh, performance I need to be at, then I need to carve my work around because it's important for me to be at those events. So, and luckily I work in an organization that is supportive of that. In fact, when I interviewed with Dr. Asnes, he told me, because I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, our headquarters is on Long Island. I'm up on Long Island every Monday. So I drive up there, spend the day or a couple of days and drive back down. But he, he told me during the interview, if your kid has a choir concert, you better make sure you're there. And so like, you just plan those things ahead of time and make sure you don't miss those important events. So some of that also is finding organizations that mirror your culture and, and how you want you know, your priorities to be displayed. And then it's being able to set the boundaries and making sure that you keep people within those boundaries. That's great. Very well said. Do you have a favorite book that you've read over the past year or a couple of years or something that it could just be a favorite of all time? Maybe it's faith related, but anything uh, that you recommend to others often? You know, I read a book uh, not too long ago. It's probably a common one that people read and I revisit it uh, periodically. It's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I find that that one always speaks to me because as high functioning as I feel like I am, I always feel like there's room for improvement. 
And so, you know, I think part of the reason I read that is because I feel like every one of the five dysfunctions that it talks about in there, like I have either at the moment or I just experienced or I know I will experience again soon. And so that's one for me, you know, as I, as I work with teams and uh, work with my direct reports and, and I always try to empower people and how do I help you continue on your career progression. They talk in football about the coaching tree. Oh, head coach, whoever, pick a coach. Coach Shanahan had these assistant coaches and now look at where they are at the, at the head coach level. And so I feel like anytime I'm in an organization, my job is to build my coaching tree. Like I want to elevate those that are working with me and around me. And so how do I become not one of the dysfunctions of the team? How do I help elevate the team? So that, that's a book that's always resonated with me. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. I had never heard of it. I just got it introduced to me last year. We do a book club here at Planet DDS uh, with the sales and marketing. There's about 15, 16 people that are part of it. And that was one of the ones that we read last year that I've reflected on frequently since reading. Because you're right, it's like the concept is simple, but it's so hard to actually follow and be constantly building trust and looking for buy-in and managing in that manner. That's a good one. Definitely encourage anyone listening to uh, to read that one. Where do you go to learn as your approach to kind of staying relevant, staying on top of the newest trends? And you know, what are some of your favorite methods to stay on top of things? Yeah, I've got a lot of different ways. So uh, right now I, I do a lot of driving to the dental practices to visit and meet with the doctors, to our executive meetings on Mondays up in New York. And so I listen to a lot of podcasts, listen to a lot of books on tape. That, that's kind of the go-to now. I also feel like conferences are a great way. If you pick a good one, there can be some good content. There's also, I think, a lot of the benefits just rubbing shoulders with people and you see some of the same people at those conferences and talking about what people are doing and what initiatives are important to them and, and walking through your challenges. So that to me is a big one. So I'd say those are probably the top two conferences. And then anything I can digest audibly or auditorily is my go-to at the moment. I'm with you on that. Any favorite podcasts? Usually when I'm listening to podcasts, it's to unwind. So it's like a football podcast or a religious podcast. So the books on tape, though, tend to be uh, how I consume the more educational material. What are you excited about in 2024? 2024 is going to be huge for us and, and for me personally. So we've just relaunched our mentorship program, which I'm helping provide a mentorship for. And so uh, we've got our group of mentors picked out. We've assigned them doctors to mentor. And then we're following that up with weekly reports and summaries. And what impact are you making in this mentor's life? And, and part of that assignment was meet with your mentor and help them pick a goal for this year. Okay? It wasn't find them and tell them their production needs to be more or anything like that. It was work with them and have them help develop the goals they want to work on. And, and it could be production related, but a lot of them are, I want to learn how to place implants or I want to learn how to manage my schedule better, things like that. And so it's taking those kind of nebulous goals and how do we turn those into achievable and actionable and timely so we can measure that we're successful on them and things. But that's a big one that I'm excited about. We're increasing the size of our hygiene executive committee and I help provide some leadership for that. So we're expanding out our mentorship for our, our hygienists as well and elevating their standard of care and um, doing a lot of education there. So I think that those are really, uh, you know, for myself personally, those are the initiatives I'm really excited about. Organizationally, we're doing a lot of uh, acquisitions and growth like you would expect. And, and it's how do we integrate those and onboard all these doctors and things. But 2024 is going to be a busy year. Lots going on this year. Yeah, you, you, you're really part of a world-class organization there. And I tip my cap to everything that you guys are doing. Thank you so much for joining. This has been really great. I really appreciate the time. I know you're a very busy guy. So I hope we can do it again in the future. And thank you for the insights that you provided. I think people will find it very interesting. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. The Dental Economist Show is brought to you by Planet DDS. 
To find out more about how cloud-based dental software by Planet DDS helps unleash dentists and their staff to focus on patient care, visit www.planetdds.com. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes by following wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.